ruined my day. <laughs> and you know what? Get Mine too. No. I was like, Paul, sir, how dare you? How? It's like baby Paul Rubens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm really mad about it. Yeah, most people were really hot when they were younger. Well, I'm not saying that it, that it surprises me. I'm just saying I've not seen him out of Pee Wee Herman costume. Oh, sure. In probably most of my life. Well, it's like the first time that someone posted that picture of Joe Biden in college. It's like, oh, oh yeah. okay. Yeah. Or like, uh, FDR on the rowing team. Oh, yeah. You've seen that? FDR on the rowing team? It's oh, yeah. Rude. I think so, yeah. It's not fair. No. That man was unreasonably attractive. Yeah, he was. He really yeah. was. Historical hotties. New yeah. podcast. <laughs> There's oh. a metric fuck ton of them. Mm-hmm. There are. Jessica Walter, Jesus Christ, Walters, Walter, she, Jessica Walter. She was a babe, she eternal was. though. Yeah, <coughs> I forgot how to drink water. Uh, I can tell our audience can tell right. too. Yeah, guys. So speaking of, uh-huh. yeah. this would be delightful with booze. Oh, for sure. Like that with gin or vodka, it would probably be uh, delightful. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't like, like either of them, but you don't like vodka. No, God no. You're just a whiskey guy. Pretty whiskey and occasionally rum. What about tequila? And occasionally tequila. Oh my god! So when we were in Bend, we had dinner at this restaurant called Blacksmith, which uh-huh. used to be the old blacksmith shop. Makes stone sense. walls, you know, really cool, like upper scale. You know, you have to have reservations, kind of place. But food, oh my god! I had their surf and turf, which was a fillet on a. Are you recording? Yeah. This oh, is really for boring. a while. Oh well, fuck. This is really boring. Though. <laughs> we could talk about booze. That's fine. <laughs> but. The surf and turf was a fillet on a bed of Dungeness crab, scallops, and shrimp. What? With on and, That's and the bed? That's the bed. And then on top of that is like a light, like white I think it was like a Bernays. Is the Bernays like more of a like light whiny? I think so. Yeah. And then the fillet on top and then a like a drizzle of chili oil over the whole fucking thing. Fuck. Where yeah. is that? Bend. But anyway, the drink. It's called the hot and heavy, and all it is, and this doesn't sound like it should work, but it does. Tequila, uh-huh. Malibu coconut rum, uh-huh. shaken with lime juice and simple syrup and jalapeno, served in a martini, like straight up in a martini. I glass. don't know if you need simple syrup when you're using Malibu. But here's the thing: I made them cut the simple syrup. Oh, how was it? Perfect. It was crisp, refreshing. I was going to say, like the Malibu seems like it would be more than sweet and enough. That's, and that's to what the waitress said. I said, "Can I have them not simple syrup?" She's like, "Actually, yeah, because it, you know, it's it's syrup is way enough. overpowering." Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, it was so fucking good. Anyway, that sounds delicious. But yeah, tequila and, and 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 coconut rum. It doesn't sound like they should go together, but they do. Anyway, no, I I, can, I I buy that. I've well, been doing whiskey soda recently because of keto. Oh, nice. it's whiskey soda and a lime. Perfect. Yeah. I love that for you. Well, fuck. Welcome to Ghosts and Hosts, the Patreon edition. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We're not doing it full. <laughs> yeah, we're all forgetting what day it is. You so guys paid for this. Oh, I, I, I knew. You paid to know what I ate and bend. I, I knew. I knew. <laughs> I was just waiting for you guys to be done talking about your drinks and your servant turf. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Okay. What's what's your drink of choice when you go out? When I go out? Yeah. Um, usually a diet soda of some kind. Uh, if I drink, when you I'll dr- get... When you drink if she's alcohol. drinking, Usually it's... just wine. Or every now and then sh- she'll get a basic bitch. 
Rarely. What is it's that? just vodka, soda, crayon, splash of lime. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's or great. I'll get um, just a vodka soda with bitters and lime. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's a basic pitch. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's Why called not? the basic pitch, though. That's... Is it called that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, that's dumb. Yeah, vodka, soda, splash of crayon with lime. Oh. It's called the basic pitch. That's good. It's yeah, great. I get it. It's, it's what I drink, period. Uh, if I'm going out drinking, that's what I'm drinking. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so. I don't usually. Especially now with my new medicine. Yeah, she I can't really. Not a drinker anymore. Mm-mm. No. Have I seen you drink? I don't think I have. I don't know. I think so. Maybe. Maybe? Yeah, when we went to see Scream. I had wine. Oh, okay. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. And they brought me the big one. The, the big end. The goblet. Yeah. They were like, do you want, it was like when we went to the Crapple Beast. They're like, do you want this pour or this pour? I'm like, well, if you, just, you better give me the big one. Yep. It's, that way I don't have to bother you again. And it's only like $2 more for like double the amount of wine. So yeah, right. fuck mm-hmm. it. But yeah, I did, I did have some wine last night with my new medicine, which made me feel a little achy. So I'm like, mm-hmm. Really? Mistakes were made. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, not like, now you know. not like super bad, but I was just like, oh, I should not be feeling like this. I literally just had two small glasses of wine. Right. Yeah. I, I had uh, some rose last night. And that's what I had. That's about it. It was so. my friend's birthday, and I oh, nice. went karaokeing. Oh, what'd you Did go? you sing? I did. What'd you sing? Uh, well, we went to Voice Box because okay. it's the one that is the, the private, private rooms. Rooms. Yeah, and yeah. you get to choose like. Whatever songs, so which BT does for future reference, Baby yeah. Kitten does it too. And oh, good, way better than Voice Box. I believe it. I yeah. did not choose the venue. Oh, okay, yeah, because it was my friend's birthday, and that's where she wanted to right. go. That so. checks out, yeah. Um, but I did uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls, from okay, Little Mermaid. That's one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> God, I love you. Thank you. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, and then what else did I, I actually did? A few, I did Shoop. With my friend, my birthday friend, because we've done it before in the past. It was a little salt and pepper. Um, and then I know there was more. I just can't remember because everybody just kind of sang every song. Yeah. Together. Once, once you yeah. get into it, it's yeah. Uh, you just, um, yeah. I did. I didn't want to sing it. I just wanted to hear it. I was just going to pretend that somebody else put it in and it wasn't me, but it was the um, eye to eye from the Goofy Movie soundtrack by Tevin Campbell because that song fucking slaps. For, he didn't need to go that hard, but he did for us in the Goofy Movie. Oh, it's a great movie. Well, I mean, the song is particularly my favorite. But, yeah, it was fun. You paid for this. You did. You're welcome. They, they already know what we're about. They know what they know. They knew what they were getting into. They also already know what the fuck we're going to talk about. How? Did don't you... they know on the Patreon? Don't we yeah, post don't you... it? Yeah. Well, it'll... Isn't it already on there? Not this moment, no. Oh. Not until I but say when... the words. Oh. Or they'll read it. The... Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, they don't They don't know just yet. No, it's that you guys know. We know. Oh. They yeah. don't. Oh. Yeah, because we don't tell everybody beforehand. No. But yeah. Like when they go to press play, it's on Yeah, they'll see it, but... Oh, okay, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So yeah, no, they don't, they don't know yet, but yeah. So it's been a minute since we've done a story story. Yeah. It has been. For We've done lots La of interviews. Patrice. Two months. It's been two months. I looked. A couple interviews. So this month, we're hopping back into storytelling. And this one is a juicy. Tis. Because <sighs> what better way to get back into it than with a good cult and their leader. So this month, 
We're going to tell you all the story of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Yeah, yeah. God knows and I love a good cult. the siege at Waco, obviously, for people that are not quite sure who David Koresh is. Well, they're going to learn. You're going to learn today. I have really only heard of Waco. Yep. And by name. Yeah. So I do not I know. I remember when it happened. Really any of this. It well, was. Here we go. It was all over. Yeah. Everything. When it happened, yeah. I remember being small and like, can we not do this now? And I, can I stop seeing this guy's that. face. Roll you no, no, you cannot. No, unfortunately. Uh, so before he was David Koresh, he was Vernon Wayne Howell. He was born in Houston, Texas, on August seventeenth, nineteen fifty-nine, to fourteen-year-old Bonnie Sue Clark. Oh my! And nineteen-year-old Bobby Wayne Howell. Uh, their relationship wasn't built to last. Shocking, I know. Weird. Uh, Bobby Wayne dumped Bonnie Sue while she was still pregnant and ended up getting married to another teenage girl. Oh, well. Gross. Yeah, he was like, well, I ruined you, so I'm going to find a new one to, to, to ruin. ruin. Bye. Which is just super neat for yeah. everybody involved. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um Little Vernon wouldn't meet his biological father until much later in life, but I will get to that eventually. Uh, anyway, after Vernon was born, Bonnie met and married an unnamed man shortly after he was released from prison. Oh, Bonnie. Yeah. Choices were Bonnie, made. Bonnie, honey. Choices were made. Uh, according to family members, Bonnie's husband was a violent alcoholic that beat her and her young son. Like infant borderline toddler son so winner not bonnie not blaming bonnie for any of this no. i'm just saying he's a fucking turd of a person her picker's a little questionable we need to well she was four she was She's 14 yes literally a child it's not like she had much to go off of no I get it. You're like, oh, this man is showing me attention. Hooray. No, sweet baby. So he was a shitbag. Mm -hmm. And eventually Bonnie passed Vernon off to her mother, Erlene Clark. I'm not 100% sure how old he was when he went to live there the first time. Some say, sources say he was about 18 months the first time he went to live with his grandparents. Others say he was around four. Mm -hmm. Either way... He would end up spending a lot of time living with his grandparents and his slightly younger Aunt Sharon and Uncle Kenneth. Because Can you get it she's together? Just being a menace in here Can today. Can you get it the fuck just together? Just a fucking menace. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Just throwing shit around the room. Won't stop, holes in the wall. won't stop talking about steak. She's fucking and alcohol. Peeing everywhere. My whole pee <sighs> everywhere, you guys. Oh, just Marking my territory. Jesus Christ. Jesus. I threw my eyeballs. Jesus, you did throw your eyeballs. Put your shirt back on. Good God. <laughs> Nakeyes. It's one of those days. It's going to be one of those days. <laughs> two hours of vodka minus the vodka. Just two We're hours. We're just getting naked and throwing shit. I mean, Yeehaw. I would not be opposed. <laughs> Somebody find me one of those rage rooms and let's fucking go. Just full feral. I need one of those in Portland. There is one. There I looked. There is one. They exist. Um, well, I think it's actually in Vancouver. Well, you've been to one, in Vancouver. You? Yeah. No, I've done axe throwing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Axe throwing. I know it was up in St. John's. Yeah. Anyway, 
Let's get it no, no, this it. is the rest of the podcast. Is, <laughs> here is four sentences about David Koresh's childhood and the end. Um, <laughs> no, so either way, he went to spend time with his grandparents a lot in his youth. Um, and yes, he was born and then his grandparents had two more children, which... Sounds weird at first, but then you remember, oh, she's only like 15 or 16 years old. Yeah. So, So, a little old to be. His mom is only 14, 15, 16 years old when her mom had two more children. So, still, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her parents probably not that much older than her. Yeah. They probably had, you know, started young too. And and what, what, where was he born? Texas. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in Houston. Yeah, there we go. Um, and it was 1959. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 Nope. I'm sure. Yeah. And there, I know there was another daughter. So they had Bonnie, and I think her name was Brenda. I don't know if you talk about it, about his mom anymore. <laughs> okay, then. Well, uh, yeah, she had a sister that was not Sharon, because mm-hmm. Sharon's the baby, baby. Um, but apparently, and I didn't write this down because I wasn't sure if you were going to talk about it or not, but. Um, Bonnie, she was a nurse. She went on to be a nurse later on in life. And um, she went to take care of her sister who stabbed her to death. So David Koresh's mother was murdered by his aunt. Ah, This was after. This was like in 2008, maybe. Oh, interesting. It was was much later. So he was already gone. But yeah, she was stabbed to death by her sister. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. So there's that. Which is, and she wasn't very old. I want to say she was maybe in her 60s. Yeah, she had been in her 60s. At that like, point. Or like, I want to say she was like maybe 64 or something. Yeah. Yeah, which is <laughs> a huge bummer. Right. So, lives with her grandparents, and due to their closeness in ages, um, his aunt and uncle were more like siblings to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he was only just a few years older than they were. If that. Um, according to Mama, which is what he called Erlene, his grandma, uh, Vernon was a sweet, precocious, and helpful little boy. In fact, on one occasion, he attempted to use the hose to fill the gas tank of the family car. Oh, bless his heart. Whoopsie poopsie. I think, he, yeah, he was like four, three or four when that happened, which, oh, helpful. Uh, she also said that her husband, a quote-unquote macho man country-type Texan who liked to drink, wasn't very affectionate with the boy, though they did go fishing together. Uh, Grandpa Clark was of the generation where the men folk were hands off when it came to the ra- the raising of the children, Touché. Yeah. until they needed to be disciplined. Then it was unfortunately a very hands on approach. Yep. In an interview, his mother Bonnie shared that he was a very inquisitive kid. I would buy things, and he would end up taking them apart to see how they worked, especially electronics and stuff. He was a very curious person. He taught himself how to fix lawnmowers and how to roof a house when he was just a kid. Growing up, he had a hard time in school. The first few grades, they said he had a learning disability. He was in special classes when we lived in Richardson. But he was always wanting to learn and explore. He had asked a lot of questions. He used to say he stuttered, but I never heard him stutter. He was too much of a talker. He loved to tell stories. If we were sitting around the campfire or something, we used to camp out a lot. He would tell stories, made-up stories, you know, and ghost stories. When he was 12 or 13, he started reading the Bible and listening to radio preachers. 
Uh, when Vernon was a little older, between five and seven, depending on the source, uh, he went to live with his mother, Bonnie, and her new husband, uh, Carpenter Roy Haldeman, in Dallas. In 1966, the Haldemans welcomed their son, Roger, who Vernon seemed to get along with pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um where did it go? There we go. Uh, in later years, Koresh would claim that his stepfather was abusive, sharing that when I used to act up, when I had a bad report card, can you imagine? We got our tails whomped. I told myself as a young man, when I grow up, I'm going to do it different. However, Roy Haldeman would refute those claims, saying, we had our normal problems. We got along okay. Uh, in an interview, an unnamed relative of his shared that Vernon seemed to always be wanting to be accepted and loved by the men in his life, and it never seemed like he got what he was looking for. His Aunt Sharon would also weigh in on the matter, saying, There was never a very, really good male role model for him. Um, someone who really took an interest in him and genuinely wanted to spend time with him and teach him something. He was a poor student. He was held back twice in the first grade and was eventually placed in special education classes. As it would turn out, he was dyslexic. He would later claim that his schoolmates teased him relentlessly and called him Vernie, though that's by far the least offensive thing they called him. But I will not be sharing them because it's just useless. They just called him really, really terrible things because he had to take special education classes. So you can use your imagination. Yeah. Um, he'd also go on to say that at some point in his childhood that a group of boys either attempted to or actually did rape him in a barn. Uh, he'd also claim that an older woman tried to have sex with him when he was around six years old, but I couldn't find any further information on either of those claims. Just that he said it. Um, he'd say that his childhood was lonely, something which his Aunt Sharon could attest to. She remembers visiting him when he was living with his mom and stepdad and shared that he'd cry every time they had to leave. And at least on one occasion, after begging to go live with Mama again, he rode after the car on his bike with tears streaming down his little face because he wanted to go live with them again. Just peddling his little heart out, crying as he's like, I want to go live with Mama. So, yeah. Um... Both his mother and grandmother were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and started teaching Vernon the ways of the Lord as soon as he was old enough. Uh, By the time he was 12, he had memorized an impressive amount of the Bible, something he was obviously super into. According to Erlene, he would spend hours crying and kneeling in prayer next to his bed. In the book The Ashes of Waco, author Dick Revis wrote, The Bible was second nature to him. Howell's relationship to the Holy Writ was like that of a current affairs junkie to a collection of news weeklies. He knew every character in them and constantly re- uh, relived their exploits. He made the Bible a smooth-running machine. Which is just a sneak peek of what was to come. Just, just a, a sneaky peek. Just peaky. a little peek behind that scary curtain. It's a, it's a curtain. <sighs> it's a bad. <laughs> it's a bad curtain. Uh, when he was 14, he moved back in with his grandparents, who now lived in Tyler, Texas, which is where we, we have been there. We've been to Tyler. We've been to Tyler, Texas. It is little. Tis. Um, instead of sharing a room with Kenneth, Vernon took over the shed and turned it into a teenage boy's dream bachelor pad. Nice. A decision his Aunt Sharon talked about saying it wasn't for lack of a bedroom in the house. He just liked the idea of fixing it up. I had a blacklight, posters of his favorite rockers, including Ted Nugent, and according to Kenneth, 
It was like a clubhouse. The nuge. The nuge. Mirror on the ceiling. I mean, right. probably. Right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, Vernon fancied himself a bit of a rock star in the making and taught himself how to play the guitar. Things were going well for Vernon and his family until his grandfather decided he'd had enough and sent his grandson back to Dallas to live with his mother. Uh, he briefly attended a Seventh-day Adventist school while living in Dallas, but eventually dropped out. Uh, his Aunt Sharon recalled that period in time, saying he was having a lot of trouble at home with Bonnie and Roy. Bonnie had to take him out of school there. So she pulled him out of that school. So in addition to fighting with his parents, he apparently got into it with one of his teachers, and that was the end of his time at the Dallas Junior Academy, which was the Seventh-day Adventist school. Once again, he went to live with his grandparents. He returned to school, this time at Garland High, but dropped out in his junior year. After this, he started doing odd jobs and carpentry work to bring in some cash. He was also pretty popular with the ladies. Was he hot? A little bit. Yeah. A little yeah. He was pretty I'll, good looking. I'll pull it up. I'll pull um, it up. But I can't describe his transformation better than Mark Lambert did in a grunge article, so I will let him do it. This is a quote from a grunge article I read because it's so good at describing this man in this period of time. And now when you speak, it's going to be his voice. It is, 100%. Yeah. That would be really hilarious if it actually happened. Because <laughs> I've never heard him speak before. I'm just channeling a stranger. Um, so he said, first, he transformed from a gangly, bespectacled kid into a surprisingly handsome dude. From a lanky frame and scholastic air, Howell cultivated a sexy Jesus vibe, just enough that people began to pay attention. He also developed a raw, scary intensity that drew people into his orbit. He's got a very Nathan Fielder look to him. I can see that from here. Yeah. Oh, no, we have the same glasses. <laughs> You're wearing your Dahmer Koreshes today. I did not intend to. I switched out my <laughs> my purse glasses with my office glasses, and everything's insane. And yeah, they're exactly the same. Unintentional. They're exactly you, the can same. Can you wear like a just a short mustache too, and just there you go. Look, there it is. Yeah, you look like you boil kids in your basement. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, he's he's not hideous. He's not. No, no, not at all. Especially if you look like find even younger pictures. Yeah. Okay. Um, which sounded yeah, weird, it but did. <laughs> I meant like when he was in his eight, like twenties, not a I, child, I, but I'm like a fan, a fan this of... time period. I'm talking about he was like eighteen to twenty years old. Oh, I'm a fan <laughs> of his moulet. Oh yeah, I'm a fan of his moulet. Yeah, that's a great, great one. So, anyway. His golden, and I'm assuming feathered tresses, gleaming in the Texas sun as the dulcet tones of Ted Nugent spill from the open window of his truck. Are you kidding me? Of course people were, like, super into that guy. Right? Yeah. Clearly, a vision to all of the young ladies in the area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I say young ladies, I unfortunately mean young ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there. Sharon's friends would come over under the guise of hanging out with her when they truly wanted to bask in the presence of her older nephew. Um, hey, easy. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, she said, I don't think he really had to chase girls. Everybody that met Vernon liked him. Kenneth, however, saw it a little differently, saying, in his younger years, he had a hard time. He was always looking for something. He had his rock and roll. He had his women, but it was never enough. That sounds like a uh, song. R- had his rock and roll, had his women, but he won and they were like, Shut yeah. up. Shut up, Brian Adams. Shut up. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. 
Shut up. <laughs> you, you Canadian turd. <laughs> anyway. I need to Google whatever it is he did wrong because I really don't know. He's just a garbage man. Brain um, yeah. yeah. Just Yeah, I just don't like his music at all. Also that, but generally he is a turd. Because he's just a terrible person. Yeah. Oh. Um, when Vernon was 18, he'd worked enough construction gigs to buy, uh, to save up and buy himself a shiny new pickup truck. According to his mom, he had a lot of friends. He'd get out and work in the yard and climb trees and run around with his dog and ride his bike. He wasn't a sit-in-front-of-the-TV kind of guy. He taught himself to play the guitar, and he went through a stage as a teenager where he wanted to be a rock star. We bought him the guitar and the Wawa's and the speakers, and he nearly drove us crazy. We'd come home in the evenings, and he'd be blasting that music, so we had to move him out to the barn. The neighbors complained, but you know, that's typical. He said he was going to be a rock star. Um, in those years, he was a little bit rebellious. He didn't want to cut his hair and all that sort of stuff. Around this time, he'd also started dating a 16-year-old waitress named Debbie Owens. My favorite part is that it was an all-you-can-eat catfish restaurant, I believe, from what I read, where she was a waitress at. Does there need to be an just a strictly all-you-can-eat catfish restaurant? Uh, apparently, they saw a need. In, like, in Tyler, Texas, in the, the early 70s, they saw a need, I guess, for that. So I remember going back to North Carolina visiting, you know, my grandfather. Cafeterias were a big thing. They're like buffets, mm-hmm. but they would call them cafeteria. K&W was my favorite. And it's just, that was a thing. Yeah. It was a big thing. But, like, you had everything. Yeah. Not just catfish. Oh, I'm sure they had more than just catfish, but. Fair enough. It's like, nope, this is just catfish. Do you want 17 of them? Great. It's 1970. That will be a nickel. Oh, would you like a soda? Seven cents. Some catfish, some collard greens, some black-eyed peas. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Any hoops. A grape knee-high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually had one of those one time. Yeah. I can still feel the syrup in my chest. Gross. It was so sweet. It's like cheer wine. Cheer wine. Yeah. Yeah. Sweeter, though. Yeah, Julian found cheer wine around here somewhere. Yeah, they have it at Fred Meyer. Yeah. And I think Winco. Anyway, people are like, what the fuck? Google it. Do go on. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, so, 16-year-old girlfriend, Debbie Owens. Uh, they'd go to the community pool where Vernon would set up his amp and play his electric guitar for hours. Oh, that's and yes, a vision in my head. Yeah, he was one of those guys that took a guitar literally everywhere he went. So that should have just been a red flag on its own. So he was Eddie from Stranger Things. No. She refuses. Long no. mullet, good looking. He didn't have a long... Shreds guitar. Well, no, but well, Eddie, Eddie did not... didn't have a mullet, he just had long hair. Yeah, and yeah. he didn't carry his guitar literally everywhere with him. That's true. And he didn't plug in an amp at a public pool and play guitar for hours when nobody asked for it. (laughs) Fair. He's that guy. Like, if you're on a college campus and you see that dude strolling around with his acoustic guitar and you just... And a fucking amp. And he just sits next to you and he's like, hey, man, you want to hear my song? No, Trevor, I don't. No. Please leave me. (laughs) Take your beanie, your acoustic guitar, and go. That guy. That guy. That fucking guy. I met several of that fucking guy in college, so... Yeah, that no. fucking douchey knew. You're just like, ugh, nobody cares about your guitar. Leave from here. Please. But no, he's like, I'm going to sit here in this public pool and make everybody listen 
to me fucking play Stairway to Heaven 17,000 times. Well, it's long enough. You only play it five. Still, it feels like 17,000. Exactly. So, um, Debbie went on to say that it was like nothing else existed when he played unless he messed up. That was the main thing in his world. I was second. Music came first. She also shared that Vernon seemed to have an almost hypnotic effect on the younger boys in the area. They truly idolized him, she said, and elaborated by saying he really pumped them up, played with their self-esteem, and they thought it was so neat that here this older guy would take the time to talk to these 14 to 16-year-olds. It was real important to him that they thought highly of him, respected his music, his brain, his values. Mm-hmm. Their relationship, Debbie and Vernon, uh, it didn't last, though Debbie would later say that during their entire seven months together, she couldn't recall him talking about the Bible once. Which is real weird. It made me think of that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sliding Doors. Because the what-ifs of it all are astounding. Like, maybe if he had done a little bit better in his music career, people wouldn't have died. Huh. Yeah. Potentially. 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 Um, As a little aside, Vernon loved music so much that he would end up moving to L.A. in the early 90s to try and make it as a rock star. Uh, He started a band called Messiah, Mm. (laughs) and their sound was described as a jazz fusion with an L.A. sound. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but I guess some of it still exists in the recesses of the internet, so if you wanted to find it and hear it, it's there somewhere. I had no desire. Singing about the Lord. Maybe. I don't. I didn't. I don't know if it was instrumental, like a jam band, or if there were lyrics. I didn't look into it deeply because truly didn't care either way. Fair enough. Um, he also convinced a couple of local venues to let him host some live shows, which he would also use as a means of spreading the good word to anyone that walked in the door. Literally a captive audience. They had no other choice. They're like, oh, I'm here to see this band and there's this fucking turd up here screaming at me about the apocalypse. I don't know what's happening. Sorry, Steve. I gotta go. I'm not sticking around for your band. Um, and obviously, rock stardom didn't take off like he had expected, and he eventually made his way back to Texas with a handful of newly recruited Branch Davidian members. Uh, being the narcissist he was, in my opinion, he told tall tales about his time in L.A., making himself out to be a much more impressive member of the L.A. music scene than he actually was. In fact... According to record store owner Calvin Ross, he couldn't be a rock star, so he decided to be Jesus. There, yeah. Yeah. And he had already joined the Branch Davidians at the time he moved to L.A. So my thing is maybe if that beforehand had, like he had tried earlier than that, maybe Waco wouldn't have happened. Maybe. It's just a huge maybe. Just wondering aloud. Um, At some point during this time, Vernon was a little lost. He was splitting his time between Tyler and Dallas. He had no real home and no steady job to speak of. So he decided to track down his biological father, Bobby Wayne Howell. He was eventually able to locate his paternal grandmother, Jean Holub, who then set up a meeting for them. Uh, She said when his dad pulled up, they grabbed each other and they hugged each other. And that was a wonderful thing. He started telling his dad, I know how to do carpenter work. It was just natural. And I'm a 
I am a mechanic, and that came natural. Now I know that I got it from you, because mm-hmm. his dad did both of those things. However touching their reunion was, I couldn't find any information on how things were after their first meeting, so I don't know how much of a relationship they had after that. Right. There was nothing. Um, around the same time he was with Debbie in Tyler, Texas, Vernon was also seeing a 15-year-old girl in Dallas named Linda, which explains why he ghosted Debbie. According to his mother, uh, he met and fell in love with this girl named Linda. About that time, I guess, that's when he really started thinking about the Lord. Linda's dad had always approved of him and let him stay over at their house and stuff. And then Linda comes up pregnant. And all of a sudden, her dad didn't want him to have anything to do with her anymore. And that sort of devastated him. And I can understand. She was just 15 and he was 19. Sort of like my story. But that's another story. So he was living in his car and he started praying. He was going to graveyards and praying and going to all the preachers around the area and asking questions. Okay. (laughs) He was really going through a lot of changes and things. So this 19-year-old knocks up a 15-year-old. Her dad gave him a big old fuck you and told him in no uncertain terms would he be marrying Linda. Uh, She allegedly believed that he was unfit to raise a child as well. So there's that. Linda was like, "Mm, I don't think you're going to be a good dad. I have also Linda's dad probably should have thought of that before he allowed a 19-year-old to shack up with his daughter in his home and let him stay the night. Yeah, you'd think. One would think. Yeah. I mean, nobody is A, her turning up pregnant, you got a fitty fitty if not. Yeah. You know, other yeah, 60/40 type odds of that fucking happening. So like, bro. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Any hopes? Like, what did you expect, my guy? That they're not fucking? They're 15 and 19. Exactly. Right. They're just hormones stuffed into skin sacks. Yes. This is it. Teenagers are just walking hormones. Yep. Um, I have no information on what happened to Linda and the baby, by the way. I looked. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. 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 That baby was lost to history and all of his other eventual children. Yeah. Um, Hopefully he never does 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Because, boy, there's good... (laughs) Unless he already knows. He's going to pop the fuck up. Yeah, be like, oh, no, that's not great. Um, So after the devastation of losing Linda, he decided to become a born-again Christian with the Southern Baptist Church. He returned to Chandler, where his grandparents were living at the time where he decided to join back up with the Seventh-day Adventists and start going to the Tyler Seventh-day Adventist Church with his Aunt Sharon. Uh, She said that he felt a lot of guilt over his fornication and sin, uh, sharing that he told her, I'm having a hard time keeping these thoughts out of my head. Well, it's because you're a 19-year-old boy and you're made of hormones at the end. Um, She also said that he spent a lot of time praying and that he lost a ton of weight around this time. Mm -hmm. Um... Initially, everyone at the church was super enamored with Vernon. He was a bright, handsome, and godly young man who was looking to reform his sinner's past and walk righteously along God's path. The Lord. The Lord. Uh, What more could you want? Well, church members learned he was out of work, so one congregant offered him a room in exchange for labor she needed done on her farm. Uh, He made friends with fellow churchgoers Bob and Maggie Bachman. 
Bob shared an intimate look into Vernon's return to the church, saying, The girl he was with in in the Dallas area was about to have his baby. It was just killing him because her parents didn't want him around anymore. He really missed the girl and felt terribly rejected that he wasn't able to be with her. He wouldn't even touch a guitar. Uh, They, the rock songs, implied very strongly to him that he was under a satanic influence, so he had washed all that away. He said, I'm just a newborn baby. Here was a point where he was asking to be led, asking to be counseled. Sad to say, it was very short-lived. Mm-hmm. Short-lived indeed. Uh, not long after he started attending the Tyler Seventh-day Adventist Church, he, according to Bachman, became very straight-laced. Mm-hmm. Now, the church itself was already pretty strict on everything, like drinking, sex, you know, typical church no nos, but yes. like dial it up just a little bit, just a little not, just a little, a little more intense than other religions, maybe. Um, but Vernon himself took that dial and turned it to eleven. Mm-hmm. He told one congregation member that his daughter was dressed immodestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took over conversations, and he was extra judgmental on women in general despite using the church as a cruising location for himself, because he is garbage. Uh, He and Sharon began attending Revelation seminars that were sponsored by the church and led by an evangelist by the name of Jim Gilly. Uh, Very much focused on the apocalypse foretold in Revelations, which Vernon was super into. He volunteered to mix up the content for Gilly, who declined, Sharon believed that this rejection was part of the catalyst that turned Vernon Wayne Howell into David Koresh, but not just yet, saying, That's when it took off. That's when he really became serious. Vernon said that even Mr. Gilly had a piece of the puzzle missing. Mm -hmm. That missing piece? A new prophet to open the seventh seal. Of course, Vernon thought of himself as just the right person for this endeavor. He tried bringing this new outlook to the members of his church, but it wasn't very well received. Uh, According to his mother, well, he started studying the femininity of the Holy Spirit. He found that in the Bible, you know, he said, hey, the Holy Spirit is not male or part of the Godhead. And he presented that at church. He made a diagram of the big-breasted woman that is talked about in Revelation and in Genesis. It didn't go over very well. (laughs) You don't fucking say, Bonnie. You don't fucking say. But that wasn't all old Vernon rambled on about. According to Shirley Burton of the Seventh-day Adventist World Headquarters, which is a thing I didn't know existed until recently. Oh, it does. uh, Vernon spoke, quote-unquote, against the sanctity of the family, claiming that others besides Jesus could lead people to spiritual forgiveness, and calling himself Vernon Jezreel, borrowing from scripture reference to the Avenging One. Mm -hmm. But of course, that wasn't all. Why would it be? The Mm, end. mm -mm. Uh, No, the final straw was his infatuation with the 15-year-old daughter of a prominent church member. Some sources say she was even the daughter of the pastor. He allegedly preyed on his feelings for her, and when he opened his eyes, he saw the Bible open to Isaiah 34, 16, a passage which reads, None should want for her mate. To Vernon, this was apparently a sign from God that he needed to marry this 15-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. He brought it up to the pastor, using the Bible to argue his viewpoint, which again, didn't go over well. After claiming that God had given the girl to him, Hardy Tapp, the church deacon, Hardy, H-A-R-D-Y, last name, Tapp, T-A-P-E, no, I'm sorry, T-A-P-P, great name, Hardy Tapp, church deacon. 
I love it. Uh, so Hardy tried talking to Vernon about the inappropriate behavior, saying his response to me was that she was already his wife in a biblical sense. I said, you can call it anything you want, but what you are doing is wrong. Right. By now, everyone was pretty sick of Vernon's shit, and his gung-ho for Jesus attitude was no longer endearing. He was argumentative, judgmental, and the influence he held over the younger members of the congregation was becoming downright sinister. Mm-hmm. One week um, after yet again taking over the pulpit to spew insanity, he was asked to leave for good. Deacon Tapp recalled the day, sharing that he told Vernon, We would like for you to leave, and if you're not willing to leave on your own, if we have to carry you out, we will. Mm-hmm. After G-T-F-O. After two years at the Tyler Seventh-day Adventist Church, Shirley Burton says that Vernon was disfellowshipped for bizarre beliefs and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Bizarre beliefs that included God telling him he was the quote-unquote chosen one slash the Lamb of God? You betcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bet your bottom dollar that was part of it. Uh, in 1981, he moved to Waco, Texas. Eventually, he traveled the 20 miles northeast to Axtell, Texas, where he visited the Mount Carmel Center, a.k.a. compound, of the Branch Davidians, which are an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that was founded in 1955 by a man named Benjamin Roden. Soon enough, he became a member himself and enjoyed singing in the choir and playing guitar for Jesus. But... Sitting in the choir wasn't enough for him, and soon Vernon Wayne Howell would disappear and become the monster we all know, David Koresh. So, I'll just do my sources at the end. This is where I'm gonna pop in here. So, if you're of a certain age like me, then you remember the clusterfuck that was the siege of the Brent Dip. Branch Davidian compound Mm -hmm. in Waco, Texas, February 28th, 1993. But even if you aren't old enough to remember it, then you've maybe at least heard of it. However, I remember it very fucking well. I was almost 21 years old, and it was all that was on television at the time. Mm -hmm. And when I mean all, I mean all. So to understand what the fuck happened that day... And why? Then we need to just dial back and start at the beginning and get into a little bit into what the Branch Davidians were and are. So the Branch Davidians is an apocalyptic religious movement that, like Z said, was founded in 1955 by Benjamin Rodin. But it was established by Victor Houteff in the early 1930s. So the group began as the Davidians, which is an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, which is... Christian religious movement took off in the late 19th century, has about 19 million members worldwide, hence their global headquarters. So the Davidian movement was first started, like I said, in 35. Victor Houtef, Houtef, we'll say Houtef, was a Bulgarian immigrant, and he separated from the standard Seventh-day Adventist theology. See, Houtef, who was a strict Seventh-day Adventist and Sabbath school teacher at the Exposition Park Church in Los Angeles, believed that the Messiah prophesied in the biblical book of Isaiah was not Jesus, but that Jesus was still coming. So in 1925, he wrote a series of manuscripts he called The Shepherd's Rod, The 144,000, A Call for Reformation. Very long title, Victor. Just call it Shepherd's Rod. Be done. Just be done, bro. 
um, in which he called for the reform of the Seventh-day Adventist church, period. Like the whole fucking thing. So he took his ideas to the leaders of the church in Los Angeles, which is a, was a committee of 12, and they were like, no, thank you. So after his ideas were rejected, he and his followers took off for Texas to form their own cult. I mean, group. I really mean cult. Mm-hmm. Um, that would later know, become known as just Davidians. So Hautef and his OG followers settled in Texas, 1935. He purchased a tract of land on the western outskirts of Waco. He claimed that he and his supporters would help bring about the future Davidic kingdom, mirroring the empire of the biblical King David during the apocalypse, and that the apocalypse was 100 fucking percent going to happen. So the compound he purchased was named Mount Carmel, after the biblical mountain of the same name, and that's where he led a small Christian religious community. They all believed that Mount Carmel would be the center of a new divine kingdom following the apocalypse, and it became the headquarters for his movement. After Houtef's death of heart failure at Hillcrest Hospital, Waco, 1955, he was 69 years old, his wife Florence took over control of the Davidian organization, and here's where Benjamin Roden comes in. Ben and his wife Lois strict Adventists, had been followers of Hautef and had visited Mount Carmel for several months in 1953 and were there again in 1955 when Victor died. So I'm guessing that Ben saw an opportunity here because later that year he was told to give a message to Florence Hautef, Hautef, God, Hautef? I think it's Hautef. That that sounds how it looks. Yeah, she had taken over from her husband, so... And to Florence and the Council of the Rod. He told them that one night while he was in bed, the Lord picked him up by his pajama top and told him to write a letter. He said that after he had written the letter, he told the Lord, these are not my words, I cannot sign this, which is when the Lord told him to sign it, the branch. Roden also said that he was later shown from the Bible and church writings that the branch was Jesus's new name. Oh, okay. Right. So Florence was like, cool. But there were those that thought that he may be a prophet himself, and those who accepted Roden's teachings then became known as the Branch Davidians. Ah, okay. So now we've got two groups rolling around, same area. So Florence doubled down and told her followers that the old apocalypse was on its way, and it was coming in 1959. Oh, so Florence and her council gathered hundreds of their faithful followers to the Mount Carmel compound where they were going to hallelujah till the very end. But as we all know, it didn't happen. I mean, he was born in 59. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, following this utter disappointment, Benjamin Roden and his branch Davidians succeeded in taking control of Mount Carmel and he purchased the property on February 27th, 1973. Benny led the culty shenanigans until his death in 1978, and then his wife became the next Davidian prophet at the compound, then in 19, his wife Lois, and then in 1981, a 21-year-old young man named Vernon Howell showed up at the Mount Carmel Center, and he studied biblical prophecy under Lois Roden. Yes, he did. So according to former branch follower, branch Davidian follower, David Buns, who met Howell, whomst we all know as David Koresh in 1981, and that Howell seemed lost, saying he was kind of a drifter. He had a car that he was driving, and he said the Lord gave it to him. He was a very disheveled kind of guy. He was poor, obviously. He didn't have a job, or at least a regular job. 
So I'm going to note right here at this that from this point on, even though the name change hasn't legally happened yet, and I will get there, I will be referring to Vernon Howell as David Koresh. Yeah. Just makes it easier. So former followers said that the compound had no running water, heat, or electricity, and there was Bible study three times a day. Koresh showed an interest in music, you know, from his past, mm-hmm. and Lois encouraged him to sing and play the guitar, which became part of the group's daily Bible study sessions. Well, y'all, by 1983, young David began claiming that he had the gift of prophecy. Yeah. He was also having a rumored affair with Lois Roden, whom was in her mid-60s at the time. And Koresh also said that God had chosen him to father a child with Lois. The child would be the chosen one. Now, I'm no doctor, but I know the odds of a woman in her mid to late 60s getting knocked up are slim to none. Yeah. That same year, Lois allowed her young boy toy to begin teaching his own message called the serpent's root, which caused some controversy in the group because Lois's son, George Roden, had every intention of becoming the next prophet, and his mama was clearly digmatized. Yeah. Georgie was having a none of it. So by the end of 83, Koresh had gained a group of followers from his serpent's root, and they separated from Lois's cult to form a new cult by the name... The Davidian Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. No. Bro. It's too many. Too many Davidians, too many words. Just, you can't be the Davidian Branch Davidian. Like, it's just, right. just it's just, he's like, I'm just going to add another Davidian. And it's totally fucking different. It's like, mm, no. Right. So, in 1984, David said that God had instructed him to marry Rachel Jones, a second-generation Branch Davidian who was... 14 years old. Yes, she was. And they would go on to have three children, Cyrus, Star, and Bobby Lane. Shortly after his marriage, a fire destroyed an admin building and press on the compound. George said, Roden said that Koresh had started that fire, but David clapped back with, no man set that fire, and said that it had been a judgment of God. George, officially done with his shit, and with the support of the majority of the cult, forced Koresh and his group off the compound at gunpoint. So David and around 25 of his followers set up camp in Palestine, Palestine, Texas, about 90 miles from Waco, where they lived under some super sketch conditions, living in buses and tents for the next two years. Yeah. During this time, Koresh went on a recruitment spree in California, the UK, Israel, and Australia. Where he got that money? Uh. <laughs> On November 10th, 1986, Lois Roden died. And the shit was about to hit the fucking fan. And I'm talking a literal shit storm is about to go down. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. So exile from the Branch Davidians at Mount Carmel had driven Koresh deeper into his delusions of grandeur. And he began to claim that God had granted him powers and that his fate would be martyrdom. And he was convinced through conversations with God, of course, that Mount Carmel was the earthbound site of the Davidic kingdom and that he needed to return. It was his. Meanwhile, Roden, in an attempt to gain support and take some of David's followers, challenged David to raise the dead. Going so far as to exhume the corpse of a two decades deceased Davidian in order to for David to demonstrate his spiritual supremacy, supposedly. Oh. Roden denied this, saying that he had only been moving the community cemetery. Well, this act 
gave Koresh the opportunity to attempt to file charges against Roden, but he was told that he needed photographic evidence in order to substantiate the charges. So, November 3, 1987, David and seven of his followers raided Mount Carmel equipped with five semi-automatic rifles, two 22 caliber rifles, two 12-gauge shotguns, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. That's... Uh-huh. Excessive. Yeah. So, I'm going to just pause here real quick. Remember, they are a doomsday cult. Yeah. And the Davidians have a gun store already. Yep. In Waco. Yeah. So, there's that. So, Koresh's group was discovered by Roden. A gunfight broke out. When the sheriff arrived, Roden had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was being pinned down behind a tree. As a result of the incident, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. At the trial, Koresh explained that he went to Mount Carmel to uncover evidence of criminal disturbance of a corpse by George Roden. Koresh's followers were acquitted, and in Koresh's case... A mistrial. Coincidentally, around the time that David was planning his reappearance at Mount Carmel, the Branch Davidians were losing faith in George Roden. See, after his mother's death, Georgie remade Mount Carmel in his own image, renaming it Rodenville. Okay. And he was generally being a real fucking ass. So by the time David Koresh started to challenge George, the Davidians were ready to mutiny. They were like, yeah, cool. We need a new prophet. This guy sucks. Then in 1989, George Roden murdered Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull after Adair had tried to proclaim him. Proclaim? Words are hard. I have a lot of them. I got a lot of them. Yeah, I get it. He tried to proclaim himself the true messiah. Roden said that Adair had actually been sent by Koresh to kill him. Anyway, Roden was judged insane and sent to a psychiatric hospital in Big Spring, Texas. The path was now clear for Koresh to reclaim his throne, and since Roden owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, Koresh and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property. So, finally, in his rightful place at the head of his kingdom in 1990, Vernon Howell legally changed his name to David Koresh. David, for obvious reasons... Branch Davidians, David, King David, and the Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, whom he claimed to be the modern-day version of. Anywho, after taking over the cult, he began instating new rules for his followers. First, he encouraged marriages between men and multiple women, uh, as well as the practice of spiritual weddings, which enabled him to have sex with God-chosen female followers of all ages. Yay, boy. So he basically, you know, God told me that she's my spiritual wife, so I need to consummate this. Blah, blah, blah. And it didn't, marry, it didn't matter if they were already married. It didn't matter if they were 12. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. So Koresh fathered at least a dozen children with members other than his wife, and he did have a sexual relationship with his wife's 12-year-old sister. Mm. For three years, David Koresh ran his kingdom, and to the outside world, Mount Carmel remained a fortress shrouded in mystery. In the early 90s, allegations were made by former Branch Davidian associates regarding polygamy and child sex abuse. Texas Child Protective Services investigated Mount Carmel, but no conclusive evidence was found because Koresh covered the abuse by assigning false husbands to all of the women and teaching the children not to mention what was happening within the walls. So now, how and why did Waco go up in flames? David Koresh 
like every Davidian prophet before him, preached hellfire and brimstone apocalypse. The Davidians had been preparing since the inception of the organization. Yep. Remember, Florence is like, 1959, it's coming, it's mm-hmm. coming. So Koresh's version was that the government was going to be the cause and that the government would attack them. He wasn't wrong. However, you can't amass an arsenal of guns and ammo the way he did and not draw the attention of the ATF. Yeah. Joanne Vega, who was six years old when she left the Davidians, told ABC reporters that Koresh shared his apocalyptic views with his followers and believed that they were the chosen people to survive because David was the son of God. And they were preparing for war and the end times. Former followers said Koresh truly believed he was on a mission from God and was the only one who could interpret the Bible and its true meanings for the masses. Former follower David Buns said his yeah. message... What? David Buns. David Buns. There's a D in there. Buns. 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 (laughs) His message changed over the years because he was always looking for the next big thing to teach that would shock people into listening to him. It was important for David Koresh to isolate the group from the world because the world is an influence that is constantly pulling and distracting you from the message. Other former followers said that women had to wear long blouses and couldn't wear makeup or jewelry. They said Koresh would tell them where to sleep and what food they could eat. Sugar, processed flour, and dairy products were forbidden. I would fight somebody. Buns said he taught that we should not eat any dairy products. His reasoning was, well, dairy products are made from milk, which is baby food. Milk is what you drink when you're a baby, and we're adults now. David Koresh, you try and touch my sour cream. <laughs> I, will, is, I will scratch your eyes out. That is the dumbest thing I think I've ever heard. Well, no, it's not. I've heard lots of dumb things. That's that's up there, though. It's, that's, that's a dump. That's that's you're dumb. It just you're an unintelligent shit turd. That is a dumb thing to say, David. David Vernon, mm-hmm. I I will mm-hmm. just yep. Shut your yep. stupid face. So Sheila Martin, who moved to the compound with her husband and their five children in 1988, said it was fun as long as we were being obedient. If we weren't being obedient, in the sense like. I went to the store and bought something, you know, that was being selfish. He always would tell us it wasn't right and we should have done it differently. And many times it was in front of everyone. Joanne Vegas said she remembers being hit regularly, saying as a kid, being disciplined was like a 24-7 thing. There's nothing that you could do right is how I felt as a kid. That fear that nothing you do is going to be good enough. You're raised with just fear. Everywhere is fear. So on February 27th, 1930, nope, Mm -hmm. it was not 1933, it was 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald began publishing a series of articles written by Mark England and Darlene McCormick entitled The Sinful Messiah. These articles reported allegations that Koresh had physically abused children in the compound and had committed statutory rape by taking multiple underage brides, which was true. Was indeed Koresh was also said to have uh, to advocate polygamy for himself and declared himself married to several female residents of the small community, which he did. Mm-hmm. According to former member Buns, David Koresh's justification for taking all of the women for himself was theological. He's the only one that had the power. He's the one with the authority to give the seed, adding that if... 
he had sex with a woman, Koresh would say she was in the house of David. The paper claimed that Koresh had announced that he was entitled to at least 140 wives and that he was entitled to claim any of the women in the group as his and that he had fathered at least a dozen children and that some of these mothers became brides as young as 12 or 13. Which was all true. Yep. So someone from within or that had defected was spilling the ugly fucking truth of what was really going on behind those walls. On February 28th, 1993, at 4.20 a.m., the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, attempted to execute a search warrant relating to the alleged sexual abuse charges and illegal weapons violations. And this attempt would lead to a 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidians and the ATF, as well as the FBI. The ATF had obtained the warrant on suspicion that the Davidians were modifying guns to have illegal automatic fire capability. Former Branch Davidian Mark Berlow claimed that Koresh had M16 lower receiver parts, combining M16 trigger components with a modified AR-15 lower receiver is, according to ATF regulations, constructive possession of an unregistered machine gun. So... ATF knew that they needed to go in. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the whole thing's about to become a clusterfuck. But they had to make sure that they had just cause for the search warrant. And these are apparently not things that you're allowed to do. Yeah. So Koresh and his followers were suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. So that along with the multiple multiple reports from neighbors hearing rapid gunfire coming from the compound as well as a UPS driver that said a package had broken open on a delivery to the Branch Davidian residence, revealing several firearms, inert grenade casings, and gunpowder. The ATF had more than enough, so off they went. Helmstever. Any advantage of surprise was lost when a KWTX-TV reporter who had been tipped off about the raid asked for directions from a mail carrier to the... Branch Davidian compound. This mail carrier just so fucking happened to be David Koresh's fucking brother-in-law. So they were tipped off. And uh, when they were tipped off, Koresh looked at the next person next to him, told who happened to be undercover ATF agent Robert Rodriguez that they knew a raid was imminent. Rodriguez had infiltrated the Branch Davidians. And after Koresh had told him at the raid, he's like, oh shit, the jig is up. And he dipped the fuck out to let them know they know we're coming. So when asked later what the Branch Davidians had been doing when he was leaving the compound, Rodriguez replied they were praying. Branch Davidian survivors have written that Koresh ordered selected male followers to begin arming and taking up defensive positions while the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. Koresh told them he would try to speak to the agents and what happened next would depend on the agents' intentions. The ATF arrived at 9.45 a.m. in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing uniformed personnel with SWAT gear. ATF agents stated that they heard shots coming from within the compound, while Branch Davidian survivors claimed that the first shots came from the ATF agents outside. A suggested reason for the gunfire may have been an accidental discharge of a weapon, possibly by an ATF agent causing the ATF to respond with fire from automatic weapons. 
Other reports claim the first shots were fired by the ATF's dog team sent in to kill the dogs in the Branch Davidian Kennels. Three helicopters of the Army National Guard were used as an aerial distraction and all took incoming fire. During the first shots, Koresh was wounded, shot in the hand and the stomach. Within a minute of the raid's start, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin called emergency services pleading for them to stop shooting. Yeah. Martin asked for a ceasefire, and the tapes recorded him saying, Here they come again, and that's them shooting, that's not us. The first ATF casualty was an agent who had made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Agents quickly took cover and fired at the buildings while the helicopters began their diversion and swept in low over the complex. The Branch Davidians fired on the helicopters. They were hit, although none of the crew members were injured. And so the helicopter... Did I say helicopter? So then the helicopter pilots were like, yeah, no, we're dipping. So they pulled out and they landed elsewhere. On the east side of the compound, agents brought out two ladders, put them against the side of the building. They then climbed onto the roof to secure it to reach Koresh's room and the location where they believed all the weapons were being stored. On the west slope of the roof, three agents reached Koresh's window and they were crouching beside it when they came under fire. One agent was killed, another wounded, the third got over the peak of the roof and joined the other agents attempting to enter the armory. The window was smashed, a flashbang gun or stun grenade was thrown in, and three agents went into the armory. When another tried to follow, a hail of bullets penetrated the wall, wounded him, but he was able to reach the ladder and get down to safety. An agent fired the shotgun, a shotgun at Branch Davidians until he was hit in the head by return fire, killed instantly. Inside the armory, the agents killed a Branch Davidian and discovered a cache of weapons. But they then came under heavy fire. Two of them were wounded. As they escaped, the third agent laid down covering fire, killing a Branch Davidian. As he made his escape, he hit his head on a wooden support beam and fell off the roof, but he did survive. Oh. An agent outside provided them all with covering fire, but was shot by a Branch Davidian, killed instantly. Dozens of ATF agents took cover, many behind Davidian vehicles, and exchanged fire with the Davidians. The number of ATF wounded increased, and an agent was killed by gunfire from the compound as agents were firing at a Davidian on top of the water tower. The exchange of fire continued, but 45 minutes into the raid, the gunfire began to slow down as agents began to run low on ammunition. The shooting continued for a total of two fucking hours. Two hours of just straight shooting. ATF agent Chuck Hustermeyer later said, About 45 minutes into the shootout, the volume of gunfire finally started to slacken. We were running out of ammunition. The Davidians, however, had plenty. How many bullets do they have? Too but again, many. doomsday cult. Yeah. In all, four, four ATF agents were killed during the firefight. Another 16 had been injured. After the ceasefire, the Branch Davidians followed, allowed the ATF dead and wounded to be evacuated and held their fire during the ATF retreat. Five Davidians were killed by the ATF and two were killed by Davidians after being wounded. Let me repeat that. The Davidians killed two of their own people after they were wounded. Fun. Mm-hmm. So instead of getting them help, yeah. they put them down like animals. Yep. Just going to put that out there. They sure do. Because it's going to happen again. So after the raid, 
ATF agents established contact with Koresh and others inside of the compound. The FBI, however, were about to fucking take command of the whole goddamn thing because when there's death of federal agents, FBI's take over. Yep. FBI's. FBI's. Uh-huh. Yep. All of them. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they all, came in. The F- all over the place. Yep. So all the, them FBI's. Yep. So the FBI's like, bet, we're coming in and we're going to be bringing the FBI hostage rescue team with us. Yeah. The Davidians, meanwhile, had telephone contacted, contacted by telephone, <laughs> the local news stations, and Koresh was giving phone interviews. So the FBI cut all of their fucking communication. For the next 51 days, the only communication they could have was with a group of 25 FBI negotiators. In the first few days, the FBI thought that they had made a breakthrough when they negotiated with Koresh an agreement that the Branch Davidians would peacefully leave the compound in return for a message recorded by Koresh that was to be broadcast on national radio. They were like, yep, sure thing, here you go. The broadcast was made, but then... Koresh told the negotiators that God had told him told him to stay in the building and wait. Despite his refusal to leave, the FBI did manage to negotiate the release of 19 children raging in age from 5 months to 12 years old without their parents. Yep. This left 98 people remaining in the building. The children were then interviewed by the FBI and Texas Rangers and allegedly several of the children had been physically and sexually abused. This was the key justification offered by the FBI to then-President Bill Clinton and to Attorney General Janet Reno for launching a tear gas attacks, not a tear gas attacks, <laughs> just straight-up tear gas attacks, to force the Branch Davidians out of the fucking compound. The FBI sent a video camera into the compound, where Koresh used it to record and introduce his children and wives to the FBI negotiators. Several were minors that had babies fathered by Koresh, and it is believed that 14 of the 23 children that had stayed behind were his children. Uh, several Branch Davidians also made statements in the video saying that, you know, all was well, they're fine. Uh, and on day nine, Monday, March 8th, they sent the tape back to the FBI to show that there were no hostages and everyone was staying inside of their own free will. And you know what? They probably were mm-hmm. 100% by choice. That's the fucked up part of all of this. Yep. This video also included a message from Koresh negotiating for more time, allegedly so that he could write religious documents he needed to complete before he would surrender. As the siege wore on, two factions developed within the FBI. One thought that negotiation was totally the answer. The other, however, wanted to implement force. Increasingly aggressive techniques were used to try to force the Branch Davidians out, such as sleep deprivation, by using all-night broadcasts of recordings of jet planes, music, Buddhist chanting, and the screams of fucking rabbits being slaughtered. Now, I don't know if any of y'all knew this, but rabbits can scream. Yeah. I know this because I've heard it. I live... In a neighborhood with lots of coyotes, and I heard something one night that sounded like a small child was being eaten in the woods behind my house. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it's that, that's what a rabbit sounds like. So if you want to know, go for it, but then you can't unhear it. So yeah. I can make it un unhearable, mm-hmm. hearable now. But just, just, <laughs> but just remember that 
this is being used. The screams of rabbits being slaughtered is being used as a sleep deprivation tactic by the FBI. That's how bad of a sound it is. Just so you know, it's fucking bad. It's real bad. That sounds bad. It's horrible. I believe you. It's and if you, it, they're, it, they're so little and cute, it's uh-huh. hard to believe that they can make a sound like that, but they do. Anywho, outside the compound, nine Bradley fighting vehicles carrying M651 CS tear gas grenades and ferret rounds and five M728 combat engineer vehicles obtained by the U.S. Army started patrolling the area. Those sound like big things. Mm. They sound very big big Uh and Uh (laughs) army-ish, combat-ish. So the armored vehicles were used to destroy perimeter walls. Seals from marksmanship. And outbuildings and crush cars belonging to the Davidians. Two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Just trying to give you all a little search warrant here. And eventually the FBI cut all power and water. Forcing those inside to survive on collected rainwater, and stockpiled military MRE rations. So eventually, Koresh ordered a group of followers to leave. Eleven people left, and they were all arrested as material witnesses, with one person charged with conspiracy to murder. During the siege, several scholars who studied apoc—this is a hard word. You got it. Apocalypticism in religious groups told the FBI, Hey, guys, um— these siege tactics that you're used um, is reinforcing their end of day's beliefs, just FYI. And it's probably going to just increase the chances of a completely violent and deadly outcome. Like this is, this is their jam. You're not helping. Like, like I get it. They're not coming out. And like, this is lasting a long time and you guys are all shooting at, at each other, but like, this is what they want. This is this is for them. This is this is it. So the religious scholars also pointed out that the beliefs of the group group may be extreme. Yes, but they were 100 percent willing to fucking die for them. Yeah. Koresh's discussions with the negotiating team became increasingly difficult. He told them that he was the second coming of Christ and had been commanded by his father in heaven to stay on the compound. One week before the impending April 19th assault, FBI planners considered using snipers to kill David Koresh and possibly other key members, but the very fucking valid concern was that the Branch Davidians might commit mass suicide, like in Jonestown in 1978. Koresh had repeatedly denied any plans of mass suicide when asked by the negotiators, and those that had left the compound were also asked, and they said that they hadn't seen anything being prepared for that, nor did they ever know anything about it. It had never been spoken of. So, here we go. April 19th, 1993. The FBI moved for a final siege of the compound using the big fucking guns, 50 caliber rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles to go against the heavily armed Branch Davidians. The plan was to use tear gas to flush the Davidians out, and officially, FBI agents were only supposed to return any incoming fire, not to actively assault the compound. So when several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI's... Oh, the FBI just increased the amount of gas being used. And after more than six hours, no Branch Davidians had left the building. They're just taking it and taking it and taking it. Then, around noon, three fires broke out 
almost simultaneously in different parts of the building and spread quickly. Footage of the blaze was broadcast live by television crews. The government maintains the fires were deliberately started by the Branch Davidians. Some Branch Davidian survivors say that the fires were accidentally or deliberately started by the assault itself. Only nine people left during the fire. The remaining Branch Davidians, including the children, were either burned alive, uh, I'm sorry, buried alive by rubble, suffocated, or shot. Many were killed by smoke or carbon monoxide inhalation as fire engulfed the building, according to the FBI. Steve, wow. According to the FBI, Steve Schneider, Koresh's top aide, shot and killed Koresh and then himself. In all, 76 people died. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition were found in the bunker storage room. The Texas Rangers arson investigator report assumes that many of the occupants were either denied escape from within or refused to leave until escape was not an option. It also mentions that the structural debris from the breaching operations on the west end of the building could have blocked a possible escape route through the tunnel system, but an independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering said that the compound residents had sufficient time to escape the fire if they had wanted to. If. So autopsies of the dead revealed that some of the women that some women and children found beneath a fallen concrete wall of storage room died of skull injuries. Autopsy photographs of other children locked in what appeared to be spasmic death poses Ugh. are consistent with cyanide poisoning. Oh, boo. I'm stubborn. Cyanide poisoning is produced by burning CS gas. So the U.S. Department, Department of Justice report indicated that only one body had traces of benzene, one of the components of solvent-dispersed CS gas, but that the gas insertions had finished nearly one hour before the fire started, and that was enough time for solvents to dissipate from the bodies of the Branch Davidians that had inhaled the tear gas. So, here's the thing. The FBI was not supposed to fire. Mm -hmm. They were being fired upon, so they were like just, more tear gas, more tear gas, more tear gas, more tear gas. Yeah. These motherfuckers weren't coming out, so... What happened is when the fire started, mm -hmm. it released cyanide into the air because of the tear gas, because that's Jesus. what fucking happens. Yeah. So it's, there's all the, it's, you know, the report's like, okay, well, the last gas, tear gas insertion, you know, with the last one they fired in was an hour before the fire started. That should have been enough time for the solvents to dissipate. Hamst mm -hmm. ever. That's a lot of fucking tear gas, so who the fuck knows? A lot of fucking tear gas. Who the fuck knows? Autopsy reports also indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot. Like I said, Koresh, as well as five children under the age of 14, and a three-year-old named Dalen Ghent had been stabbed in the chest. Uh. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believed that these deaths were mercy killings by the Branch Davidians who were trapped in the fire with no escape. The expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel concluded that many of the gunshot wounds support self-destruction either by overt suicide, consensual execution, or less likely forced execution. Yeah. So the events at Mount Carmel spurred both criminal prosecution and civil litigation. 
On August 3rd, 1993, a federal grand jury handed down a 10-count indictment against 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians. The grand jury charged, among other things, that they had conspired to and aided and abetted in the murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. The government dismissed the charges against one of the 12 Branch Davidians, according to a plea bargain, and after a jury trial lasting nearly two months, the jury acquitted four of the Davidians on all charges. Additionally, the jury acquitted all of the Davidians on the murder-related charges, chargers, <laughs> but convicted five of them on lesser charges, including aiding and abetting the voluntary manslaughter of federal agents. Eight were convicted on firearms charges, and they all received sentences of up to 40 years. Several of the surviving Branch Davidians, as well as more than 150 family members of those who had died or were injured in the siege, brought several, so many fucking words, civil suits against the U.S. government. Numerous federal officials, the former governor Texas of Texas, Ann Richards, and members of the Texas Army National Guard, they sought monetary damages um, under the Federal Tort Claims Act, Civil Rights Statutes, and the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act as well as under Texas state law, but the bulk of these claims were dismissed because they were insufficient as a matter of law because the plaintiffs couldn't produce any material evidence. So, in a 2013 NPR article about surviving members, then 72-year-old Australian Texan Clive Doyle still lived in Waco and still had Bible study every Saturday with another Waco survivor, Sheila Martin. Doyle, at the time, had become the Davidians' unofficial historian and spokesman, saying that they are still waiting on the resurrection of David Koresh. Oh, boy. He said, we survivors of 1993 are looking for David and all of those that died, either in the shootout or in the fire, and we believe that God will resurrect this special group. Oh, boy. Out on the grassy rise east of Waco, where it all happened, there's a new Branch Davidian community that has risen from the ashes, and they call themselves Branch, the Lord Our Righteousness. Like their predecessors under Koresh, the new community of Davidians is, according to their leader at the time of the 2013 article, a man named Charles Pace. They are all waiting for the end of times, with him saying the United States has to fall in order for the one world order to be set up especially if there's a war in the Middle East. That's when they're going to see Branch Davidians start scrambling to find out what the truth is and where they need to be. So where were y'all? That ha- what? What? Okay. Anywho, looking back on his time inside Koresh's sect was... Well, words are hard. Mm. Hold on. Words are hard. Where am I? Oh, okay. Looking back on his time inside Koresh's sect, David Bunt said it was difficult at the time to fully understand what was going on around them, saying, I'll call it a cult. That's what it was. It's people doing things they wouldn't normally do, like giving up their wives and letting their children have sex with adults, which is crazy, but that's what you do when you're in a cult. Someone says they have authority and then impose upon your rules and restrictions and expectations and it gets down into your soul. It really screws you. And that is the siege at Waco and the insanity that was David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Yes. Um, a lot of people died in there. Too many. Too many. 
uh, you know, his wives, his children, uh, his in-laws. And, you know, that's the thing. It's like his his legal wife, his first wife. Yeah, his first and only legal, legal wife. wife. Second generation Davidian, you know. Yeah. And so her parents were like, yeah. Yeah, you're 14 here. Yeah. Oh, yep, nope. Our 12-year-old daughter, that's your spiritual wife, too. Absolutely. Have mm-hmm. at it. Like, what? Fucking yeah. what? Yeah. So, yeah. Davidians, still around. Yeah. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists are like, no, thank you. No association. No They're association. Like, mm, nope. No, thank you, please. Nope. You know, it's... That's, Which, that's... for an organization like the Seventh-day Adventists to be like, no thanks, is saying a lot. Yeah. 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 You know, it's... Yeah. You take one very interestingly strict type of religion, and then you know there's an offshoot, and think it can't. It's it hyper strict religion offshoots are just like pedophilia. They're never great. No, no. They're never great. No, no. And it lasted. 51 days. Yeah. You know, and here I am on this thump of a 13-page, you know, story, but I there's so much more. I could have... Mm-hmm. There's 51 days, and I, yeah. I had to condense it as, as best as I could, but yeah, you know, and... There's there's a movie that was made mm-hmm. that and I haven't seen. I think the, I heard it was really good. The though. newer one wasn't there yet. Yeah, yeah. I I kept seeing pictures of it when I was doing research. Right but now, um, but you know um. that's this is the thing. It's like I get why the ATF had to go in. Um, they were stockpiling weapons, and that on top of all the sexual allegations that were starting to come out. Um, you know, they, but they had to go in, they had to go in, they tried to go in peace, just try to get a little search warrant going. You know, they had actually even considered, Hey, maybe we should just go talk to this guy at first. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's maybe let's just, let's little, you know. Yeah. But understandably so, um, the amount of weapons that they had and as militant as they had gotten, it wouldn't have been safe. It wouldn't have been safe. And there really, they there was no negotiating with David Koresh. And, and they tried. Like I said, all of that was condensed into where I led into the final siege. There was 51 days yeah. of, here, here's a videotape. Why don't you, a video recorder, introduce us to your family. Let's, let's talk. Let's, there were 25 FBI negotiators. Hostage negotiators trying to work with these people, and they wouldn't leave. That's crazy. Would not leave. Yeah, and yes, it was recently. Yeah, it was 2018. Uh, it was a miniseries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Shannon and Taylor Kitsch, cool. and Rory Culkin, mm-hmm. John Leguizamo. Hey. <laughs> so, um, y'all got sources to read too. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But yeah, just 51 days. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like I said, I was 21 years old. I remember. Shit, I was, shit was wild. I remember when it happened because it and was literally inescapable on television. It was 51 days. Everywhere you looked. And then, you know, 
the siege was being filmed and then all of a sudden the fire and I just mm-hmm. remember you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. They're not coming out. Nope. They're not coming out. Yeah, it was. We're, they are not coming out. It was a very a surreal thing to see right. and watch happen after being like tangentially aware mm-hmm. of what was going on because I was, what was that, 93? Mm-hmm. I was eight. Yeah. I was four. So I remember it existing (laughs) and being like, what is happening? And then seeing this giant fire all of a sudden and being like, wait a minute. So hang on. There was a bunker down below, which is where the women were, which is why um, a lot of them were buried in the rubble. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, three fires started at the same time. Simultaneously. Yeah. Three. How and who? So did the Davidians set the, set it themselves? Don't know. Or was it a spark from a bullet that set off some of the gas? Yeah. But, you know, either way, it, it all bad. All bad. All bad. David Koresh, dead. Wives, dead. Children, dead. All of them. Amongst all the other 70... Five people, I think I said it was. Uh, 76. 6, 9, 10. Yeah. 76, uh, 25 were kids. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's it's real rough. So. Any hoops. Like I said, I mean, there's, there's a lot more just in terms of legalities and the things that they tried to implement and do before it got real bad. But it was... You're going against a doomsday cult. This is this is what was going to happen. This this was this was their moment to shine. It was David Koresh's moment to shine. Mm-hmm. He said he was the Messiah. He said he was going to be a martyr, and he did it. So now to the rest of the Davidians, like this guy who's probably dead now because it was in 2013, but maybe not. They're literally waiting for his resurrection. They're waiting for him to come back. Yeah, they believe he is going to be resurrected. He believe they they believe they are all going to be resurrected. So, cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah. So my sources: five hundred fucking wikis, ABC News, Muriel Pearson, Spencer Wilking, and Lauren Efron, Vox.com, Tara Isabella Burton, Biography.com, PBS.org, All That's Interesting, Katie Serena, Rolling Stone, Eric Kilalea. WacoHistory.org and NPR.org John Burnett. And mine, uh, PBS.org, CNN.com, Ashley Fance, Ranker.com, Jody Smith, Grunge.com, articles by Mark Lambert and Natasha Lavender, uh, CBSNews.com, Peter Van Sant, TampaBay.com, Biography.com, Murderpedia.org, TexasMonthly.com, Pamela Koloff, uh, encyclopedia.com, chicagotribune.com, Michael Hursley, uh, washingtonpost.com, uh, an article from May 9th, 1993, called The Transformation of the Waco Messiah by Jim McGee and William Claiborne, thefamouspeople.com, and all that's interesting.com, Katie Serena. Yep. All right. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So, like I said, there's, there's other. You know, legalities and things, and we crammed 51 days of a siege and a backstory on who Koresh was into an almost two hours. So yeah. If 
feel free to look it up yourself if you want. Yeah, but we touched all the key points. We did. We, we got the juicy bits. We did. There's a lot we of got the meat documentaries. A lot of and there's that miniseries. Miniseries. Yeah. So <sighs> if you want more information, it is definitely out there. There's plenty of books. I'm certain. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's again, you know, there's a lot of that gray area in terms of the the siege was 100% legal. No one fucked that up. It's just a matter of what should they have laid off the tear gas? It, what started the fires? It's just all of these inquests and such, but yeah. So, but just the the handling yeah. of it. I think it was handled well enough. Um I mean, that's just my it, there's no negotiating with a doomsday cult. I mean, what do you do? But I don't know. There's, there's, there, there are certain things like some of the tank tanks were driving over graves, and both the FBI and the Davidians were like, "Could you not do yeah. that?" Like, but it's the unavoidable things like that. So anyway, all right. Well, we done done it. We did. So um. Nope. No. No. Uh-uh, this is Patreon. This is Patreon. We done. We done done. Yeah, well, Patroon, we done done it. Do your thing. All right, well, till next time, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.